This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. A grow light for humans that cooks a guy's face. A pharmaceutical mist that puts you in the right mood for mourning the victims of terrorism. The year of all hell breaks loose. The year of the censor. Mudslides. Hurricanes. People who flee and people who stubbornly stay put. A terrible structure. A grand experiment. Creams and lotions that induce false prophecies. People who tumble into each other's marriages after they're dead. Every inch of the earth has a graveyard, more pharmaceuticals, lives curated by drugs, the pills we swallow and the pills we reject, the way you never really know anybody. That's a quick trip through some of the images and ideas the writer Ben Marcus hits the reader with in Notes from the Fog, his latest collection of short stories. Reading them is like ingesting a powerful hallucinogen synthesized by a computer that's digested a good chunk of the internet. They feel the way life these days often feels, but with its skin peeled off. Welcome to Think Again, Ben. Thank you so much. It always feels a little weird characterizing somebody's writing right in front of them. Out of That all, was weird. I'm curious what your immediate reaction to what you just heard. Like, what did I miss or what? I thought that was pretty thorough. You picked up some, <laughs> some, uh, some nice ones of the whole world being a graveyard. Because some of those little details are buried in the stories. So you did a great job. <laughs> I think we can stop now. Okay. All right. You fully Let's... summarized the book. <laughs> I, think we're, I think we're done. Let's all go home. I love this about these stories. There are like a couple of things that sort of resurface through multiple stories, but not in any overt or obvious way. And like, yeah, one is the fog. There is this notion of the fog, which we can talk about. There is this thing of like these dubious amorphous pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And then there is this thing of death, of like everywhere you walk, death being present. I mean, those are the three primary subject matters for everyone, right? <laughs> <Aren't> <laughs> Pharmaceuticals, uh, yeah, fog, fog, and death. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That seems kind of universal. Yeah. Let's talk about the fog. Notes from yeah, the fog. Sure, yeah, sure. Like, what is the fog for you or the fog? Yeah, well, <laughs> in the story Blueprints for St. Louis, <clears throat> there's a main character. She's an architect, and she's trying to design a memorial for a terrorist attack. And she's kind of agonizing over it because she realizes it w- will never be adequate given the, the people right. who have uh, suffered in order to you know lead to this memorial. And I guess I got into the way she started to think in in being unable to come up with any structure that would ever honor something right. catastrophic. She starts to think that there's something kind of just out of the range of vision that will would reveal everything. Like if and someone says, you know, if only our vision were slightly sharper, we'd see ghosts. And she attributes right. this to someone else. I don't know if anyone has ever really said that. But mm-hmm. I guess to me, it's connected to this idea that we're on the verge of a deeper understanding, but that 
we're we're just shy of it. That we're we're in a state of confusion, and we can operate like we can function. Right. But that in some ways we've decided that certain mysteries just like can't be chased anymore if we want to live our lives. Like right? like well what? deeper religious mysteries. Why we're here, what we're supposed to do, right, right. how we're supposed to act, what happens next, what this all really is, and we know that vision is super subjective. And so there's some of these things that are such conundrums, but if you, I think if you consciously operated with all of this in your head, you'd, you'd kind of go mad. And so she, she seems to think, she puts out this speculative theory of bird vision that birds just see meshes of light, that right. objects aren't objects, that everything is light. And it's kind of like half true. Right, right, I mean, right, I, right, right. And, I, and, and yet it, it's like, to me, I guess, I know this is a long answer, but no, it, no, please. I think it connects to Go like on. a deeper longing to be able to see and know and feel more. Like we look out and we think we know everything we're looking at. And of course we do, but there's also just this possibility that nothing is as it seems. And so I guess the fog, to bring it back to that, yeah, yeah. Is, is maybe just that thing that gets in our way that thing that keeps us from some larger clarity, and maybe the clarity itself is a myth, right? Clarity is a construct. Insight is right. a construct. But what about our desire for it? How do we manage our desire for that? There's a moment uh, in one of the stories, uh, somebody says that it's difficult living in the moment before a great invention yeah. or, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and this, this, what you're saying now is reminiscent of this. And, and both of these are... I don't want this to come out wrong, but these are both surprisingly optimistic ideas considering the way that I feel within a lot of your stories. Yeah. Like, like yeah. I feel that the characters, I feel the oppression of the world around them. I feel the like web of bullshit, the, yeah. a, a poor schmo yeah. being experimented on for right. human growth lights, yeah. you know, because he can't, that's his job, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so I, like, I, boss tells you know, you this do. sort of dystopian hell that I think a lot but, of us yeah. do feel we're living in, but what you're also indicating or nudging towards in these things is, is something will something save us. better. Yeah. Like something. Yeah. It's funny you see it that way. Cause like, I guess I'm thinking of the way in which, at least for me, it's easy to believe that some little technological advancement might, might actually kind of materially change my life or make, make things better. Or the way in which I think there's a myth that we're living in a time of really rapid technological advancement. Right. I don't really know if history's going to see like like new emojis in your <laughs> iPhone as like a real advancement. I mean, I actually think it is a really significant advancement. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I was thinking that like advancement and change are yes. two different things. Well, I sure. mean, I don't think anyone could argue we're not in a time of rapid change. Yes, that's right. The question and, is whether and, progress And two, is, though, yeah. like it, it, maybe it's easy to believe that something will come along that, you know, spares us from death for instance, or changes our, yeah, you know, yeah. our medical futures, right? We, we are allowed to indulge a kind of a low-grade, maybe quiet fantasy. I mean, I do. I think, well, maybe I won't have to die. I mean, probably in the way anyone yeah, does. It's right. just like, yeah, I'm going to be different. <laughs> I'm going to figure that out. Once, once on this show a long time ago, I talked to Carl Oved, now Scarred. Yeah, sure. And, and one of the surprise clips that came up at the end of the show was, I think, Michio Kaku talking about uploading your consciousness yeah, and living right. forever. And now Scarred was, I would say, predictably utterly horrified yeah, by sure. that. You know, there's a passage in, in one of my stories where a character is kind of thinking about how, like, when pain gets kind of resolved, okay. we're going to look back and think about the way in which we manage pain as just 
idiotic that there was this kind of code around the people who hid their pain the best. Mm. All the ways in which you're supposed to be stoic and right, right. and sort of celebrated for not showing that it just fucking hurts. <laughs> and he's just going to say, he, just, someone says, you know, we're just going to be seen as total mules, that we just literally endured this and it's going to sort of be embarrassing. Anyway, it's a speculative yeah, yeah. thought about the ways in which we've kind of wrapped our heads around our current predicament and that if some of these things are alleviated, we're going to have different hindsight. As I'm talking to you right now, as you know, I have slept poorly on my neck yes. and, yeah, and I can barely turn my head. You're bleeding um, on the floor right now, which is awkward for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the audience can't, can't see it. Thank God this is audio. But um, <laughs> do you have a paper towel by any chance? Uh, you know, I'm all out. <laughs> But, um, Listen, I want this pain to teach you, as you're saying. Guys, so I'm not going to help you. Can we get a mop in here so at least we don't slip and make this worse? Someone once said that, like, I, I had gone through a, a kind of a terrible, weird autoimmune thing, and I had this unspeakable pain, and I finally sort of realized that why people throw themselves out of buildings, like, in pain. Mm, and, it was that and sometimes when thing. people say, yeah, you know, pain's really instructive, I just, my totally biased thought is, you really haven't been in, like, serious pain. Like, when you have the ability to say that and be sanguine like that, that's just, it's a total bias on my part, I'm, but I'm just like, well, no, no. you know, good luck. Maybe I, you'll go your whole life I, 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 without, I, I, No, you know. <laughs> I get that. And I certainly understand the horror and smugness of like saying that to, for example, somebody that's dying of cancer when you yourself have never been through anything yeah, like that. Yeah, you know. but it's self-protective to say it too, right? Uh -huh. I mean, you want to have an advanced strategy for this thing. Yeah. So you, you want to think that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, well, to me, those things are positive and negative, like this sort of fear of yeah. what's coming coming next. And I think my characters do have this kind of tendency to speculate into like tomorrow or a year from now and to sort of, you know, wonder what might change about them. But it's, to, again, I hope connected to a kind of yearning, a yearning just to be other than they are. Speaking of like being other than you are um, and kind of speculating your way out of your situation, there's a way in which your characters, or a lot of them anyway, are like not in their own lives. There's the boy in the first story in the book who, you know, we have the idea of kids on the, uh, we have the reality of kids on the autistic spectrum yeah, who yeah. don't, but he's not, that's not really what's going on with him. He just sort of seems, or we don't know. But well, he's, he's making a very conscious choice not to, to kind love of his love his parents and everything <laughs> else is the same. And yeah, to me, it's, it's almost just a slightly precocious adult choice that sometimes we do without even making it. I mean, I think teenagers can can kind of shut off a little bit or all of their sympathy and empathy if they have any towards their parents. And so, yeah, to me, that story was maybe slightly accelerating that a little bit and seeing what happened. Well, and so then the father, who still has fatherly impulses yeah. toward the child, yeah. is in a sense not in his own life properly because right. he can't connect right. with the child. He can't connect with the wife. The wife keeps her feelings to herself. Yeah. She's sort of sympathizes. I mean, she's seeing what's happening with the child, but she's also on his side. And so in this way, there's you yeah. know, it's just all these people kind of unable to it's really... It's fabulous estrangement of family. <laughs> yeah, and I'm really late to that party. That's <laughs> That's been a great subject of fiction kind of from the beginning, right? The, the, the special agony of a family, which isn't to say there isn't a special joy in a family. Sure. You know, the way in which I think we can misbehave the most around the people who possibly won't throw us out. There's a great line in that story. What is the story called again? Cold Little Bird. Yeah, Cold Little Bird. Um, someone is, is calling out the father for his 
quote unquote dangerous feelings, I think. Yeah. And the father says all, all feelings of the are dangerous. Feelings yeah. are dangerous. You know, you're married to someone and you're in love with that person, you have a kid, and then you're kind of co-managers of this project. And right. that's sort of not necessarily connected to your love relationship. It's it's just a different it's a different part of your brain and you're you know you're not doing it alone where you make all the decisions you're doing it in tandem and it's really natural to disagree and then if you're disagreeing when the stakes are really high I don't know to me I guess it, it was just a, a way to have a different layer of conflict that wasn't just a conflict of like why doesn't my son love me anymore right and I, I thought like that couldn't hold the whole spotlight or it would it would kind of crumble a little that, bit that it had to had to yeah, be between like the, local, the parents as well. Local conflict kind of helping t to tow along the larger conflict, and yeah. uh, it's all kind of mechanistic in a way. But no, that's um, interesting. I mean, do you think do you, do you no. think that way when <laughs> you're planning a story? No, but when I show up for an interview, it's sort of <laughs> like that's what I did. <laughs> no, but you know, it's funny. You know, you, you get asked how you do these things. Yeah, and it's, sure. And it's just an interesting set of questions because I think for the most part, no one has any idea. And then some people really just try to play ball a little bit and try to say. Sure. But it's not, I don't know. It's not like you're sitting there with like a whiteboard and a bunch of, I don't know, modules and you're shifting them around. I mean, it is a very, I think it's an intuitive process and you just hope your intuition isn't totally fucked. Like you, <laughs> And then after the fact, you can say, oh, look, like it looks like there's a subplot. And, and, yeah. and maybe sometimes in revision, when something's really wrong or just if something doesn't feel alive at all, you can say, well, why is this dead? What's missing? And then you can go back and try to impose more things. So I'm thinking three things at once. But one is like um, I remember reading Zadie Smith once talking about how saying that there are two kinds of writers. Yeah. And I would say like she's brilliant, but beware when anybody ever says there are two kinds of anything. But yeah. she says there are two kinds of writers <laughs> and one kind maps out their whole destination. And yeah. I think when I talked to Orhan Pamuk, the Turkish writer, he said he does that. Like he maps yeah, everything out. Yeah, I've heard that out. too. Yeah, about and then, But then the, the other kind, which she said she is, and it sounds like you are you grow up navigating through the fog at, at, and finding their way. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I think in the end, and, and there are probably those two, and there are probably other kinds as well. But I think that does that kind of covers those broad bases. And you know, I, I teach, and so I also see that in students when they come and they say, you know, I want to write a story, and they literally recite the whole story to me, and I just think, well, why bother? <laughs> you know, like the whole point would be to figure that out. But on the other hand, then I think, well, you know, what do I know? Who you know, am I to say? Well, the point yeah, is yeah, the yeah. result. So yeah. I think, like, in the same way, when people are like, do you drink coffee when you write, and what kind of chair do you use and what, kind, what kind of like do you go on the internet do you not like all of that stuff it's interesting in a local way but it's it's irrelevant connected to the product or the thing that gets done like so you know in the end right it really kind of doesn't matter you do the thing you think you need to do you wouldn't be doing it if the immersion in that process weren't something that does it for you in some yeah i mean hopefully way, if like, it's not it, yeah right yeah. like the, it, it evolves and it and you you slowly figure some stuff out that, that might yeah. help. And maybe there are times when you say, you know, it's not working to be so intuitive. I'm going to try planning this out mm. because maybe, you know, you need to be adaptable. Or, you know, I get bored. Right. I get bored, too. I'm just like, I've written this story before. I'll start a new story and think, shit, this is, I've written this already. So what do I do to not? And sometimes yeah, yeah. you have to kind of pull a Hail Mary and do something a little off your, you know, normal map. Yeah, those are, I guess, those kinds of questions when you're sort of looking at your work and your career yeah. from this bird's eye view, which is like, 
probably both annoying and unhelpful and at other times helpful to jar you into something. Yeah, well, I think for me anyway, I'm just, it's too easy to be reminded that I've kind of covered something already. Uh, uh And I just don't have an endless imagination or even an endless set of interests. And I just think, I sure would love to do another story where someone's experimented on medically, but right, 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 right. I haven't done three or four of them, <laughs> right? And you're just like, shit, like maybe I change my name and just kind of want to keep this going. You're like, I want to write it, but does yeah. anyone else, does yeah, anyone want to read and, that right. again? Yeah, yeah. yeah, and so it does. It can feel a little conspicuous. You're just like, why, you know, can't I get rid of this idea and then make room for something else? It's those moments when I guess the artist can relate to like, Brian Eno and John Cale's oblique strategies well, sure. cards or exactly. putting a pin through the Bible and seeing what word you find. Or well, what. right. Then you get away <laughs> from your intention and all of that. And uh, yeah. yeah, I have a friend who's a painter. I've talked about this a little bit before, but he, well, I'm 51. He's probably about the same age. A couple of years ago, we were talking. He was just like, yeah, fuck, you know, I've kind of just done everything I kind of want to do, but I want to keep working. Like, I like to work. And he said what he was doing was he was going back to everything he had been dismissive of Mm. in his 20s, say, when he was maybe more guarded, a little more insecure. And he's like, fuck figurative painting, fuck all these things. And now he's like, you know, now I'm just not sure what I had against all that stuff. So I'm just going to do it. And see what it's like if I do it. And I've I've done a lot of that as a writer where I just I'm like, okay, I'm just tired of this territory. I'm gonna do something well, like that story Blueprints of St. Louis, for instance. Right. I had always sort of semi-consciously forsworn against really writing about an artist and an artist's process, looking inside the agonies of an artist trying to make something. I just thought gotcha. that was a big fucking snooze. I just I didn't want to read it. I <laughs> thought it was, you know, just too self-centered, too, too meta, too yeah. insider baseball. And then yeah. there was just a day when I was like, <laughs> I don't have anything else. So I'm just gonna do that. Like how why do I hate that? What was I like, why was I against it? Well, I couldn't even connect to the feelings of that anymore. So I just thought this is a way to at least try to write another story. That's a really interesting story too, because it ends up being in part about how we all deal with the kind of psychic burden and reality of these tragedies that keep happening, yeah. school shootings. Where do you put that in your head? How do you actually, you know, and how do you deal with the guilt around not feeling what you're supposed to feel when you're supposed to feel it if you don't. That's exactly right. Like yeah. she yeah, she has a line where she said she, you know, she knows she's on, you know, grieving for these people but can't figure out why she's not collapsed on the floor and capable of living because yeah. of it. Right? She would think like this is so atrocious, like how can I even function? I'm I'm talking next week to uh I'm, I don't know why I'm like name dropping throughout this whole episode. That's it's kind really, of unpleasant. It's really yeah. annoying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm talking next week to an anonymous photographer who shoots like in war zones and oh, stuff. Oh, wow. And one of the things that's freaking me out as I prepare for that interview is the feeling that the reason this kind of photography exists is to kind of thrust us into the middle of this scene, pull us out of our kind of everyday yeah. Amazon.com yeah. lives and make us make us feel it. Build empathy. But like when I look at a photograph, oftentimes I don't have that access mm. like even yeah. if it's a really good photograph yeah in part because of maybe the maybe i'm a bad person or maybe it's just the overwhelm of everything you it's know, a really I, good question <laughs> or we're, we're accustomed to photographs of atrocity and there's they're still at a remove right there's yeah. there's a way we don't feel 
necessarily implicated by them or were, were saturated by them. And so then this question of, is there a moral imperative? Should we, mm-hmm. if we were re- good people, should we be rushing off somewhere else right now? You know, well, it's sort of connected to, yeah, it's connected yeah. to the ways in which climate activists are talking about not just the political inertia, which is based on greed, you know, and just absolute malice and cruelty, but the kind of the inertia of someone who is even sympathetic to the cause that that there's this theory now that it's it's such a consummate problem and we're told that it's irreversible and that the problem is so large people have have almost just shut down in response to it right so it can't even really be in the news cycle to any degree i mean this thing that came out a week ago about how yeah you know what <laughs> actually <laughs> we've that? only got you know 15 <laughs> yeah, years this, or whatever, it's happening yeah. tonight you yeah, guys yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right i mean so and of course there's lots of reasons why things don't make it into the news cycle but i was just listening to some people talk pretty interestingly about how the problem's so consummate and so intense that that there seems to be this individual inability to to deal and also just a feeling of hopelessness a feeling that that nothing now matters and and so they're trying to rethink the framing of the crisis. You know, it's sort of funny though. It's like how do you, it's like, well, you know what? So your body's on fire, right? And you're gonna die, um, and that they're like, shit. We got they didn't really <laughs> that didn't really worry them. We've got to right, reframe right, this. Right, it's, right, a, right. it's a language problem. If only we were stating this differently, everyone would suddenly care. But yeah, and it's, I think that and I think that. the truth is that like you know, for all the op-ed pieces and all of these kind of all of this hand-wringing about, like, why aren't we caring more? Like, if you look at almost any given individual, they are somewhere on that spectrum yes. of being kind of in the fog with respect to these yeah. massive, Yeah, or, or, or certainly trying to, do, trying to do things. And so it's not like a, it's not a finger-pointing thing so much as a larger phenomenon of, of paralysis, even, yeah, among, yeah. even among the good-willed. And that, but you know, we could say that happens with a lot of crises, right? Not just not just climate change. I had the idea this morning about a WPA-style federal program, like if, for example, in a freak election, you know, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez gets elected president hiring one person per family to kind of follow you around and like ethically advise you on how to, what to recycle, which fish not to eat, where not to go on vacation because it's exploitative. You know, yeah, help, but, help and you it's funny though, like, it's funny that that has to be such an extreme fantasy <laughs> because it also could be read as just common sense. Right. Not, not that the person has to stalk you. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we could get that information in like yeah, yeah, yeah. safer, less creepy ways. I guess what I mean but is that yeah. like you're making a million micro decisions sure. every second, sure. and you often don't yeah. have. We've had the sense that there are these connecting webs of information that we don't fully have access to. Yeah, and I think too we're talking about the ways in which people kind of sh- shut down. Yeah, around a crisis that's so big that it's unmanageable because they have the local crisis of their their lives and their jobs and their relationships and. There's that. Yeah, yeah, there's that. I'm curious what things people tend to pick up on and ask you about in your work and like what they miss. What's important to me, I suppose, is is something that's hopefully very intense emotionally and very kind of grounded in right. in, a, in a emotional realism. And so I think the stories are to various degrees adorned with the fantastical or the invented. And some of it looks like it could happen very soon. Some of it maybe is further off. And I wrestle with 
not somehow pitching a story into a place where it loses its matterfulness mm. emotionally, mm. where it might be, oh, well, that's... Where it's a, so kind of, um, what's the word, conceptual yeah. or something that... It, and, and yeah. you know, I think that I... I feel I, I used to kind of get read as someone wh who was, well, with my first book, The Age of Wire and String, it seemed like the the word, small as it was, because it really wasn't widely reviewed, was, well, there's some kind of interesting conceptual conceits here, but this is a cold, bloodless book that doesn't really tell us anything about what it feels to be alive. Right. And, right, you know, right. I thought that that was part of my value system. And so it was jarring mm. to, to kind of connect to that and, and maybe good in that it kind of pushed me to, you know, be sure I, I kind of try to strategize oh, as, as supply as I can about about that, because that's just in a way more important to me than, oh, you've invented a new kind of pill or like all of yeah, that yeah, in yeah, a way, yeah. it's like a, the furniture of a story that's kind of meant to push characters into slightly more extreme places that can then, you know, lead to some emotional territory that's kind of harder to get at in our daily lives. And so... I haven't really read too many reviews this time around. I, the basic book review doesn't quite do that even. It sort sure. of summarizes a little bit and says, these stories are like Black Mirror. And um, <laughs> and then they say, but you know, they're really bleak and you shouldn't read a lot at once or you'll get depressed. And I think that's either like a great selling point for a certain kind of reader or a total turnoff for another kind of reader. Right, 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 right. You know, and that's another big conversation is why why so bleak, why so dark, why so negative? Like, I like reading things that put what feels like the real world emotionally in front of me instead of reading that feels like more escapist, like a chance to be entertained, but not think about kind of mortal things. And I know the value of that reading, too. The kind of dread that you do get at is something that, like, as we've been talking about, everybody feels everyone is surrounded by both in their personal lives and yeah. in the broader I think context. a lot of people and have no interest in that in their reading. Or they don't think of reading as as a gateway to that. They're like, "Fuck that! Well, why would I? Why would I read something so bleak?" Like when somebody dies in your life, and there are a couple of situations here. I mean, a yeah. number of stories in which somebody passes away. It throws everything into sharp relief, and it throws your emotional life bare in a way that you maybe don't have access to, even if you're living with a kind of like low-grade ambient dread the rest of the yeah. time. And having those elements in the story, I think, does that to both the characters and the readers. You know, there are these really varied motives of, for reading. Like, what right. is reading and right, why right. do we even do it? Right. And, and I guess I have always felt, in a way, comforted by some of the bleakest stuff. I think of the Austrian writer Thomas Bernard, okay. who's really kind of relentlessly grim, but also funny. And I, I feel a comfort because I feel like he's not really looking away from the world and pretending it's other than it is. And I, I am saying that while hoping not to criticize that looking away and that pretending, because I actually think it's really valuable. And I pursue a lot of entertainment that does just that. I mean, there's kind sure, of TV. escapism. Yeah, there's TV I watch that I, I really need to just not be thinking about dire things. What is your go-to most escapist fun show of all times out of curiosity? Oh, geez. Or That's, recent times. I watched a really curious show that I thought was going to be really junky, and, I may, and I've literally talked to nobody about this. Uh, it's called Castaways, and it looked like a re reality okay. show. It is a reality show. But at the end, I was telling my wife Heidi this. I was like, because she was out of town. I watched it on my own. And I was like, you know, it's not a reality show. It's a documentary. 
Anyway, just briefly. Are people are on an island? Twelve people are kind of shipwrecked in various ways. And it's a series of islands, so they're all separate. And they each wash up with someone else's luggage. But there's no prize. There's nothing. Okay. There's really The goal is really, can they survive? And there's two ways of getting off the island. They can say, I quit. Or they can wait for rescue. Okay. And essentially, they all just kind of collapse and break down and some try to find other people others are like into their solitude and it just has this almost like really slow like frederick wiseman documentary pacing where i'm just like this is really it's just <laughs> odd because it's so kind of defiantly non-dramatic i i don't know how much i should proselytize about this show but it was very interesting to me because it did not fit a genre it wasn't like survivor which i also watch where, you know, there's a contest and they're going for money and right, there's, right. there's conspiracy and, and you're trying to kind of leverage and keep secrets against people. It literally just, there was no guile. I mean, there's- It sounds some, very existential. It was right? really that way. <laughs> so there's these two dudes, kind of like bro guys, who they find each other and they're fairly good at survival shit. Okay. So they get a little bit of food and they kind of, they're like, we can do this. Like, we might get bored, but we're going to live. We don't have to quit. And then someone else just suddenly like, paddles around the island, exhausted and starving, and they're like, fuck, we gotta <laughs> carry this guy. He's not gonna bring anything to the table. We got, are we gonna share our food? So like all these ethical things <laughs> come up. And I don't know, I was like really into it. I just, it was at they're the end like, of the day. Our libertarian bro lifestyle will no yeah. longer suffice. Well, and so like, they <laughs> actually kind of shun this guy at first, and then, they kind of get a conscience and they get actually almost crippled with guilt about it. And so one of the dudes who shuns the guy, you learn in his backstory that he has this kind of ne'er-do-well drug addict brother who he's tired of giving handouts to. And it's all just like, oh, that was like a neat little pairing and kind of deep and problemi yeah, problematizes right? and then he's, the stereotype. He's just like, like you know, I just don't <laughs> like people who can't help themselves. And suddenly all these people's worldviews are coming out. And of course, at the end, they're all totally broken down and they're all kind of five <laughs> of them kind of make it and they find each other. And they're all sort of like in love with each other in a way. And, if, you know, you know, it's all going to go away and they're all just going to return to being whatever the fuck they were. <laughs> but I don't know. There was just this way I thought, oh, this is like not really a reality show, but I guess it was. It was just a reality show without a lot of the affectations. Well, yeah, because reality shows haven't really been reality shows. They've mostly yeah, been they social pretty, pretty, pretty constructed experiments. Anyway, so I didn't mean to go off on such no, a tear I'm, about that. I'm, no, I'm so glad that you did. And I've that literally awesome. talked to no one else who's watched it, so like, I don't really know if someone might be like, oh, dude, you, you don't even know that show is totally rigged. And so like, I haven't looked it up. You know, I mean, uh, your perspective is valid, even if it turns yeah. out to be totally rigged. Just like, like it wasn't trying. <laughs> and so I was really interested in that. It seemed very patient with itself. Briefly, I mean, going back to what you were saying before about the tension between the like totally far out and surreal mm -hmm. and the very emotionally real and grounded. I mean, that, I feel that for sure in your stories. And in that sense, you probably get this all the time. The only other writer that makes me feel that way is George Saunders. Yeah. I was going to say that, but then I also recently read Lauren Groff's Florida. Oh, yeah. And there's, a, there's something of that tension there, too. I mean, I don't know how helpful it is to tell a writer. Well, it's not that you're sounding in any no, way. No, I get it. No, it's flattering, I think. Yeah. You know, um, I'm reading Florida now. I'm almost done with it. And she's fantastic. And she just has, she also has such range. And she can, 
she can write really, really well and really gravely within the here and now, too. Like sure, she's, sure. So, you know, uh, I really always read everything she does and really admire it. And then, of course, George Saunders really, I think, has kind of, in a lot of ways, set the terms for a lot of contemporary fiction. And the way I see it is there was this sort of period of fiction where there were very clearly these two camps. And it was like the realists and the experimentalists or the postmodernists or whatever you wanted to call them. All those words are a little okay, weird now. Sure. But they were the ones who were maybe react, reacting against the kind of what they saw as a safer domestic narrative that had kind of been told to death. And so they were just like, let's John fuck, Updike yeah, or whatever. Yeah, let's fuck with, let's fuck with language or yeah. let's let's push on physics. Let's push on reality a little bit. Let's let's play with form. And Bar- Bar- yeah, it would, it would go back. To Bar- Bartholomew and Cooper Barthel and, and Gas and Angela Carter and right. there's a lot, a lot, a lot of people you can name and and I do want to say those divisions in so, in some sense are hollow and like if you talked at length you, you'd find there were so many exceptions so I don't want to sure, sure, sure. come across as if I kind of subscribe to them but it was sort of just what what I heard growing up like that you know and there was an anthology called like the anti story as if like story itself was this sort of enemy but. It was, and then there was an anthology I loved edited by Tobias Wolf called, well, it's the Vintage Book of New American Short Stories or okay. something like that. And in his intro, he sort of is, in a way, having an argument against the writers he sees uh, as like, yeah, more more postmodern, kind of against this emotional realism, against realism. And I think nowadays those arguments really are gone, and there's been a lot of synthesis of these territories. Yeah. And someone like George is, is a really good example because it was as if, I don't think he did this literally, it was as if he said, why can't I have it all? Like, what... I, I am interested in everything, the human experience being at the core of it, but... I can strategize any way I would like to deliver that. And right. some of those ways might be fantastical, um, yeah, because hyperbolic, exaggerated. But And that didn't undercut the emotional possibility of the story. Pure formalism is always unsatisfying in some sense. Doing something just to not do something else. In hindsight, it does look <laughs> yeah. super limited. And yet, probably in the moment, there must have been some vitality behind some of these right. these attempts, right? Sure, that's right. It also takes some of its maybe emotional force from its yeah. from its historical meaning in the moment. Just like that's right, punk rock. Just by its well, yes, being punk rock. Something you know, like, something novel comes along, and, yeah, and yeah. I could imagine for a certain reader, it was really delightful to encounter this what felt like a kind of antidote towards an otherwise kind of maybe dull territory, at least to that reader. So some some barriers have come down, but it's possible that some younger reader is going to come along and see something really fucked and dead about that and is going to correct in a, in a new, interesting way. Yeah, and I that's mean, it, just how it works. it's sort of tempting and I think boring ultimately, but probably true to say that this has something to do with the internet and the way everything overlaps there, yeah. past, present, I'm sure. real, surreal yeah. fiction. On, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure but you're I'm right. sort of tired of <laughs> saying that. Yeah, I think, I think it should just be a given <laughs> for any conversation. Yeah. It's like, yeah, the internet caused this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, this is the perfect moment, I think, for us to move into the, for the audience, these are surprise video interview clips from Big Think's archives of video interviews, each one on a, like, idea, and there'll be thought starters for us. I haven't seen them, Ben hasn't seen them, we are encountering them fresh with you, 
the audience. This is Dixon de Pommier. Oh, he's a microbiologist and ecologist by training. And it is called The Challenges of Vertical Farming. As of this moment, the WHO and the Population Council estimate that about 50% of us live in cities. Um, and the other half, of course, live somewhere else. The other thing we can learn from um, NASA, of all places, is how much land uh, those 7 billion people, half urban, half rural, actually need to produce their food every year. And it turns out to be the size of South America. So the size of South America in land mass is used just to grow our uh, crops that we plant and harvest. I'm not talking about uh, the herbivores like the cows and the goats and the sheep. So when you think about how much food is consumed by cities, let's say half, it takes half of the size of South America just to produce it. Now, if the human population continues to increase, which we expect it will, so over the next 40 years, you might have 3 billion more people to feed. And you look around for the land where that's going to come from in terms of traditional farms, and you don't find it. It isn't there. So the biggest problem facing us as a global species is where will the food for the next 3 billion people come from? So it could come from some place other than a traditional farm. And, it, and the question is, could vertical farming solve that problem? So by vertical farming and a vertical farm, I mean any building that grows food inside of it, or in which you grow food, which is taller than a single story. So there are many examples of vertical farms out there which are not traditionally thought of as uh, towering uh, gardens of Eden, so to speak, as the images on Google might suggest from some of the planners and, and designers that have submitted their own visions of what they think a vertical farm should look like. Uh, most of those uh, would satisfy the cover of any science fiction magazine I could think of and, and attract a lot of attention and uh, get people to ask, well, what is that building and what is it doing? But we're, we're not pretty close to, to, to seeing those yet. I think those are going to be expensive and they're going to take a lot of um, rethinking with regards to urban planning. But we don't have to do that in order to have vertical farms already. Uh, there's a vertical farm in Singapore. It's a brand new building. It looks like a greenhouse from the outside, but it's four stories tall. But it's a clever design. It, it uses traditional growing systems, though. It uses soil-based potted plants on a series of conveyor belts, which migrates the plants by gravity, some kind of a grandfather clock-like apparatus, which actually moves this conveyor belt of plants near the windows maybe once or twice an hour so that every plant gets the same amount of sunlight during the day, at least. Because it rains every day, uh, there's certainly no shortage of water for these plants either, and it uses traditional fertilizer. And the guy has moved from a 2,000-square-foot operation to a 20,000-square-foot uh, operation, the same. It almost makes you wish we could just eat from UV grow, light. Grow lamps, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you had, or you had those, um, there's also, what was that thing called jug? Oh, yeah. In that same story, right? It's sort of like it's um, a spoof on Soylent. Soylent. Yeah. yeah. But of course, the ingredients of those meal in a jugs have to be farmed. They have to be farmed. Somewhere. You know, listening to that does sort of make me think that, you know, is there just a sentimental attachment to farming itself and that vertical farming 
how much is that really solving? And what what we're really talking about is nourishing the, right. the human what body. What about lab-grown meat? What about, you right. mean, right? Well, like, and, and, you know, as I was kind of making fun of some of those new tech ideas in, in the Grow Light Blues, well, I remember reading this thing that uh, Elon Musk said mm. a couple years ago, and he was just talking. It was something like how to be as productive as Elon Musk. I was like, I'm going to read that, <laughs> did it, <laughs> but did it just it, made me angry. Did it help? No. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, after that, shit just took off for me. <laughs> no, but he he talked about like his time management and his day, and he talked about meals as pain points. Oh my god! And and he was just like, you know, a meal is a pain point because I'm not working, and so what he's doing is he's he's overlooked what a meal also is, which is this spontaneous chance to kind of connect with people or to read a cereal box or whatever the fuck. Right. But like, it's funny. So I have two kids and we're always struggling to actually have a family meal, which I, I don't know. It's just really hard. How old are your kids? They're nine and 14. Okay. And when we do it, we're like, well, that was actually really fun. And even they like it. So there's just stuff that happens at a meal that isn't about eating. Right. However, you know, when you think of it in these kind of ecological crisis terms, it, it, it does sort of seem like... That's gonna be a casualty. Whatever, whatever emotional shit we, we're gonna get from eating, if we're smart, is probably gonna be a casualty to just figuring out a, like the pill or the, the just the fabricated nutrition that's gonna keep us alive. Humans are so funny. Like, I mean, the way that we we solve problems and then we have to like solve the problem oh, yeah. we created by solving the problem. And well, so, that's exactly right. Like, yeah. if we eliminate meals, I mean, it's happening even now in a sense. But where we're like, okay, so we eliminated this this time that psychologists say was essential yeah, totally for us crucial. <laughs> to connect to each other and yeah. have new ideas. Yeah. So how can we engineer yeah. that time into our lives now? No, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, in the same way that, you know, the new iPhone update has a way to, you know, monitor your screen time and use it less. It's just like, well, you guys <laughs> cause that. Yeah. Yeah, now yeah. you're selling the solution. I mean, vertical farming sounds, it sounds fantastic, but it also seems to presume a kind of, well, it presumes a government that's even going to acknowledge the problem. Right. And I don't know what our current government, I can't think of the name of the president right now, but um, <laughs> I can't, just can't imagine there's a, an especially sympathetic <laughs> attitude about, you know, any kind of future forecasting of this kind, right? No. I mean, this well, is a I version. Don't, I don't think this works for the right or the left, right? Because because the that's extreme, a, a extreme left is suspicious of techno-biological slash entrepreneurial-driven solutions. They want their bespoke food trucks, too. There's like, does this yeah. mean my food truck goes away? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think this, this, this supposes some kind of moderate future that is hard to imagine from but our current I think it's <laughs> also, it's really important that people are, are, are doing this work and kind of presenting these options. But it, it, it seems connected a little to the, the, the climate change conversation we were having where Clearly, like, I guess I know abstractly that we're going to run out of food. And, right. you know, part of me is like, well, maybe that'll be good, you know, and I lose some weight. Terrible, you know, dumb, superficial reaction. But, like, <laughs> it's hard to really internalize that crisis. It, it, right? it occurred to me listening to him that, I mean, I, I went back to the Zadie Smith, there are two kinds of people thing. Yeah. And I was like, there are the kinds of people who try to solve these kinds of problems. And probably most of them are motivated by, I thought of that Paul Simon line uh, that's like, this is a lonely life, sorrows everywhere you turn. 
But that is worth something if you think about it. That is worth some money. That's worth something if you, you know, I was thinking yeah. that like, yeah, that you know, that, like that solution orientation seems to be pretty connected for many, many people with the capitalist impulse. But like we're, to, we're talking about our ability to kind of actively sustain concern about something that's offstage. Right. Right. And so remember after Hurricane Sandy here in New York, for a little while, there were there was a pretty interesting time in some newspapers where there were these proposals about how to protect the whole kind of New York Harbor. Right. Right. Like, right, why right. did the why did the tunnel flood and all of that? And, you know, we know this whole place is, is, is fucked and doomed. But <laughs> but then all these kind of really imaginative and maybe semi possible plans started to come out. Um, some were really kind of like deeply organic with like certain kind of plantings out into the harbor right, that would, right. uh, I don't know, adjust the current. There were just, there was some really kind of like granular organic plans and then some that were much more imposing and much more kind of material. But lots but of smart whole, solutions Yeah, but and I ideas. don't know, that whole phase just kind of went away as far as I know. I mean, is anything being done? Yeah. Like a single thing? I, I mean, I'm, I guess I don't I'm, know. I'm not the guy who would know, however... I wouldn't be surprised if that momentum kind of like Well, it felt like we all got down. we got engaged in a kind of problem solving because there was something sort of immediate and and that hurricane really did hammer the city in, in really immediate ways then it ended. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, it seems like again we're talking about some limitation to entertain a fear if it's not like knocking on the door. You know, this idea that somehow like the profit motive is the only thing that can incentivize humans to do anything. Yeah. It's sort of true in one sense. But it also incentivizes people to do all kinds of shit that we don't need. And it's true and not true, especially with climate stuff. In that there there is some speculative capitalism around wind energy and things like that right. now. But there are now. That, I mean, the deregulation of our era is it's so insane now. It's tilted, and now people realize there's money in acknowledging climate change. But um, only people that don't already not run, everybody, run right? a and multi-billion so, dollar yeah, multinational right. gas company. got its tethers <laughs> in, the, in the past. Yeah, that's right. And so <laughs> those things cancel each other out. It's hard to know where, the, where, where exactly we end up on the balance sheet. But, I mean, it but seems it like this larger question is like, how do we continually ignore like really good knowledge, really good information? We're, you know, we can listen to this very smart man. And, you know, a few hours later, I'm going to... I'm going to have moved on from (laughs) vertical farming. Uh, You know, and it's possible someone's listening and saying, well, you know, fuck you. I I am doing X, Y, and Z. And, you know, just because you're saying you can't sustain this fear actively in your conscious mind doesn't mean people can't. And that's defeatist. And so I think that that's true. And in in that sense, you know, listening to him, you know, I imagine I'm going to bring up vertical farming to a friend today or, you know, and and it's possible then that... This slow, yeah, iterative, you know, spread of ideas is is a, it's just a component of all of this. Sure, right? sure. No, that's right. I mean, and and there are there are of course people that are that are doing brave, bold, and definitive, better and people, good things. There's yeah, better people than, 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 than you and I. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Okay, well, now let's go on to something totally different. This one is from Leslie on our video team, and I had sent her my hallucinogenic opening spiel to yeah. this show. Yeah. And she said, for some reason, my mind jumped immediately to this clip when reading this description, not sure why. Great. So let's see. All right, let's do this it. This is Ben Gertzel. He's got a big artificial general intelligence kind of like wiki project where people are working on that. I know that because he was on this show and suggested that we trip on acid and discuss pan consciousness or like like where everything is conscious, including rocks. Okay. He that thought we right. should do that. And did you do that? We that wasn't within the purview of this show and I have I think he uh, went back to Korea, but maybe someday, I hope. Yeah. My cousin who lives in Hong Kong is a game programmer and he loves what I'm doing, but he just tells me when we discuss it, I need immediate gratification. <laughs> like he codes something and he sees a game character do something cool, right? And if you need that, if you really need to see something cool happen every day, AGI is not for you. And in, in AGI, you may work six months and nothing interesting happens. And then something really, really interesting happens. So I think... If someone doesn't have that kind of stubborn, pig-headed persistence, I will tend to employ them doing, for example, data analysis, because th that gives immediate gratification. You get a data set from a customer, you run a machine learning algorithm on it, and you get a result, which is interesting. The customer's happy. Then you go on to the, to the next data set. And if you explain the different types of work available. Actually, most people are, are pretty good at, at choosing what won't drive them crazy. So some people are like, yeah, I want, I want to do stuff that seems cool every day. And other people are like, well, I, I really want to understand, you know, how thinking works. I, I, I want to understand how cognition and vision work together. And that's much more interesting to me than applying an existing vision algorithm to solve, solve someone's problem. So I, I, tend to, I tend to throw the issue at the potential employee or, or volunteer themselves. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But I, I trust them to know themselves better than I know them anyway. There are many different types and levels of problems that one encounters in, in doing AI work. And there are sort of low-level algorithmic problems or software design problems, which are solved via clever tricks. And then there are deeper problems, like how do you architect a perception system? How should perception and cognition work together in, in an AI system, if a system knows one language, how do you leverage that knowledge to help it learn another language? I find personally with these deeper problems, this is the kind of thing you solve while you're like walking the dog in the forest or, or taking a shower or driving down, down the highway or something. And it seems to me that the people who make headway on these deeper problems, have the personality type that carries the problem in their head all the time. Like, 
you'll think about this thing when you go to sleep. You're still thinking about it when you woke up and you just keep chewing on this issue a hundred times a day. It could be for days or weeks or, or years or, or even decades. And, and then the solution pop, pops, pops up for you. And not everyone has the inclination or, or personality to be obsessive at sort of keeping a problem like an egg in your mind, in your focus, and, until the solution, the solution hatches out. But that, that's a particular cognitive style or, or habit or skill, which I see in everyone I know who's really making headway on the, on the, the AGI problem. I think one of the things that interests me the most about that field is not necessarily what it's trying to do, but what it's overlooking in, in doing it. And that this idea that like, you know, we're going to kind of achieve artificial intelligence when there's so much non-artificial intelligence that's kind of getting overlooked. Right. In other words, we have <clears throat> all of these intelligent organisms and all of these humans whose own intelligence is being vastly underused. And if the idea is like we need to sure. marshal like intelligent uh, agents or whatever you want to call them into doing things, it just it just seems as if we're sort of saying, well, human intelligence is kind of now off the table. Right. Let's let's reinvent this thing. But you know, it already got invented, and and we're sort of chasing after this thing that already exists. And so it's odd, right? And and of course, it's very hard to do. And I guess we're supposed to believe in the dramatic arc of their struggle to do it. And I don't mean to undervalue just the the, the research of this because I, I, it's 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 clearly fascinating. And you know, we could be interested in in cloning without saying we need more people. Right. So um, you know, I get that you want an organ farm or whatever, but it, it's harder to connect to kind of a, a sort of a more humanistic awareness in some of this. I, that was a, a short clip. Very short clip. I mean, I think cars probably can and will drive a hell of a lot better yeah, than I human beings. Yeah. You know, because we're all over the place. Yeah. I don't know when artificial general intelligence will do something that we're not already able to do. But I mean, it's funny, like we don't understand our own intelligence and that's sort of their project in a weird way. It's a different angle on psychology. Like, yeah. let's see, how do we make creativity? And like, if we try this, what does it feel like creativity? Yeah. Is this poem good? Right, but <laughs> some of the people doing this don't actually value poems and creativity some, in real life. Some and of so, them don't. Yeah. But I, I, I no, that's right. And I, but I, but or I, they're doing it for a world that doesn't. Sure. Like you've got a lot of actual poets. I guess. <laughs> and like, do we need to create fake poems? Because you're already ignoring the real poems. <laughs> you can ignore the fake ones too. Right. Right. Um, yeah. You, let's you, put a little are, bit of the the money and energy yeah. and whatever behind. You already voted against there. funding yeah. actual poetry. <laughs> but on the other hand, look, I, I, I get the value of this, and, I, and I, I definitely think it's interesting. And I also really, you know, for the record, really believe in research that is not articulating a practical application. Right. I think that that is important. My dad's an abstract mathematician, and, oh, okay. you know, and at dinner parties, you know, someone's like, well, what's your math for? And there's not really an answer, but there, I, I also don't think there has to be. On the other hand, the ethics of AI, I think, are huge. And it'd be one thing if we lived 
under a different kind of government where, yeah, where yeah. we've, or, or let's say a different sort of economic system where we haven't seen over and over again the exploitation of, of tech to take away privacy and just to f- feed people's baser urges while destroying their lives. You know, and I know probably there are good ethical conversations around this stuff. The question is, will those conversations really have any leverage or bearing? Because that, that, that's, that's, they won't. That, that's what it is, because, I, be because li- I, know, I know he's involved in some of this, too. And it's yeah. like, how do we, you know, make empathetic AI and so on? But you're creating a technology yeah, a tool. that will give unimaginable power yeah. to some people. Yeah, and someone's going to try to own it and, yeah, yeah. and will own it. And I, Again, and though, like, does no, that mean they shouldn't do it? You know, we know historically it doesn't really work to shut down knowledge pursuits, sure. right? And I'm not going to sign on for that. Wait, so he's the guy who wanted to trip on acid with you. And discuss and pan... What is it called? Panpsychism. Okay. Because, well, we got to the end of the conversation, and and I was trying to get him to explain panpsychism. He believes, literally, believes that everything in the universe the, has oh. consciousness. Yeah. Okay. And I was like, I have no idea what you're, what that means. Right. You know, what I was does like, that I, mean? like I was like, okay, I, I, everything vibrates with energy for sure. Are yeah. we talking about energy? You yeah. Know? And well, he right. Was like, mean, he was like, we, if we have twelve hours and we tripped on acid, we could talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what that means. I mean, I can't behave with the same sort of reverence toward a, a camera yeah. as I can toward a human. There, it's there just, are li- different levels of complexity. And know. it's just hard to <laughs> divorce all of this from just like the state of affairs of, of actual people, too, whose minds are being undervalued and underused. Yeah. And that, that's sort of just the, that. That's sort of it's an economic question in, in, in a sense that. It's not like we have a society that prizes intelligence exactly, right? And so, I don't know. I just I'm curious. No, like, that's the tricky thing, and that and that's what and that's where the that's where the ethics get murky. It's like I agree with you. I would never shut down any kind of research, but if you're creating something that potentially disintermediates millions upon millions of people from future mm-hmm. jobs when we already have millions of people starving around yeah, the world with no jobs yeah like yeah. it just seems irresponsible if that's not somehow part of a larger project to address those questions so it seems like the underlying question is like what what do we want from technology like what is it we really would like yeah and or what is it we really need Right, and well, and, the, and the problem is the we because like yeah, there is no we, like there isn't a we. Yeah, like, no, there really is not. <laughs> the we died last week. Yeah, or, but even if like I think, well, what do I really want? Like, what would I if I could just kind of dream up what what would come along? What would I want? And yeah, it wouldn't be AI exactly. You know, mm. I'd like pain relief, that kind of thing. Well, I think we've basically pretty much solved this the, yeah, the problem we did it it's good now <laughs> I, f- I feel so much better cool cool <laughs> so no more no more need for this show or for writing any yeah. more stories yeah signing off what are we gonna do now i don't know <laughs> get a smoothie <laughs> i think a smoothie would be good ben marcus i really enjoyed talking to you man thank Likewise. you for being on the show thanks it was really was fun cool. Well, I think we can all agree that that's enough thinking for one day. Go forth and do. Do something good for yourself and for someone else. And if you love this show and you want to see it live forever, please take a minute to rate or review us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. 
Feel free to join the conversation on our Facebook group, Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. And we'll be back next week with the Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, Lindsay Adario. See you then. <laughs>